1: Welcome to Talking Business, the podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAS site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website, at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Getler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 29 in our series of 2023, and today's date is Friday, August 18th. First, I'll be talking to Rowan Winterson, the Managing Director of New Laboratories. We'll be talking about supply chain issues. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist, Shane Oliver. But first, let's talk to Rowan Wooderson.
2: Oh, and there seems to be a whole lot of supply issues happening. You've noticed it, and there's also the price increases because the supply chain crisis. So, what's your view about this? The whole situation,
4: if you roll back, it you know it started way back in effectively March, April of 2020. So people are thinking about that. It's a big issue that's happening now. But in our industry. A lot of things just went out of sync quite fast. So and when you say our industry, you mean the beauty industry. In the cosmetic cosmetic manufacturing industry yeah. for skincare, body care, tanning products, all sorts of things. And I'll actually come back to tanning products shortly, which is an interesting one. So you have these supply chains that are all based on individual ingredients or raw materials. So you might have an emulsifier that's made up of multiple raw materials. And as soon as you as soon as the the world stops ordering these, then the raw materials stop getting sourced. So you might have three to 20 individual raw materials that go to one end manufacturer to create that material. And so when all these things stop happening, then effectively those suppliers, they run down their supplies, then price starts moving up. Then they try to catch up with demand and they can't catch up with demand. So it becomes a supply demand situation. So you might have bamboo material that comes out of Thailand that goes to France to be processed. Well, when you don't have a demand for Thailand, suddenly those materials stop getting made. So then you creates a supply demand situation. And then everybody comes sort of out of that lockdown period. And suddenly they're going, I want to ramp up my production. I no longer want to make hand sanitizers. It becomes a case of, I want to make lotions. So next minute, you know, everything goes crazy. The other side to that, which is really, I think it's kind of a bit of a perfect storm situation because right now we're we're seeing shortages happening and prices going up because of situations that are happening in you know that very unfortunate war in Ukraine. A lot of a lot of oils come out of there, particularly sunflower oil. And so we suddenly saw sunflower oil take a two to three hundred percent increase overnight because of the shortages coming up. But then at the same time, You see the issue related to energy going into Europe, particularly to the German manufacturers, and that has a kick-on effect of factories in Germany in terms of manufacturing materials. So suddenly you get short supply and cost increases. And we had a recent example of an emulsifier where the lead time blew out to 25 weeks and ran into short supply, and it was on the back of that. Then you compound that with Indonesia, reducing the export of palm oil, so obviously supply their domestic market, which you can't blame them. But then that pushes up the price of basic materials. So suddenly glycerin goes up three to 400% in a matter of months. So you've got all these elements of people not buying, suddenly wanting to buy. You've got um, energy issues. You've got countries where materials aren't going to come out of. got domestic markets protecting their supplies for their, their own population. And the result of that is that when you go to manufacture a product, the lead times to get materials have really blown out. You know, if I go back to the boring example of glycerin, previously you could contact the supplier, you could go, go and get five tonne tomorrow, not a problem. Now it's calling around which suppliers actually physically have it and which suppliers... We're only going to charge you 300% over the base price as opposed to some suppliers going 600% over. So it really has become a bigger challenge. And what did that means to the consumer is that when you go to your store and you see an increase in something that used to be $29, it's now $32. That's the reality of it. It's the cost, unfortunately, kick on down the line because manufacturers pass on the costs to the brands and the brands pass on the costs to the retailers and the consumers. So yeah, it's kind of this perfect storm situation. And one of the really interesting ones that came up recently is a material called DHA, which is used in your self-tanning products. Last October, it became pretty much a global shortage and you could not get any in Australia. And that's only now coming back online now. So you had a situation where a very popular material just even wasn't accessible globally. And when it came back online, it had gone up 30%. So when you go to buy yourself, Tanner, the understanding is there's an increase because of shortage and shortages just increase cost.
2: So from new laboratories perspective, this is what very much caused by a combination of what COVID and the war in Ukraine.
4: You got, you've got COVID, you've got the war in Ukraine, and you have the shortage of palm oil coming out of Indonesia. You can couple that with shipping increases, which have gone up three, four hundred percent as well. The shipping makes up a cost of everything, and that that shouldn't be overlooked. I mean, you go think about you know, container for example, out of China used to cost maybe two, three thousand dollars a container. Now it's for a 20-foot container, now it's 12,000. Look at those differences and obviously that gets passed on in the cost of raw materials. So, so what's driven up the cost of shipping? Well, a similar thing, you had you had factories in different countries say, well, COVID came along, retailers stopped ordering, everybody you know, quite rightfully was concerned about what was the future of world economies. And as a result, you end up with a slowdown in manufacturing in one country, things open up again, everybody wants to get back on board and suddenly it's a supply demand issue. There's only so many ships in the world. And it's a finely tuned, I would say, dance with the shipping systems. Like a ship comes into Australia, traditionally they're not going to be going out with a full container loads back to China. So the situation is if, it's, if you can't get enough outgoing goods coming out of Australia, your cost coming in is going to be quite high.
2: This raises a very interesting question because <clears throat> uh, all of these issues... Aren't going to go away that quickly. I mean, this can last for quite some time to the next few years.
4: We're telling our, we're telling our, the, our brand partners we work with, consider this going through to at least 25. I, I don't see. that There's a couple of parts of this process which I don't think people necessarily talk openly about. One is yes, you've got to take. There's going to be time for supply chains to realign themselves. The other problem, and we've seen this. Previously, where raw materials went short in the world, they never go back to their old price, and that becomes the inflationary aspect to this. Now, you know, we, we have this is this is an example, and um, it can be broken down. You know, I suppose if you're on the upper end of this example, you can break it down in a different way. We buy a, a raw material which is seaweed-based, and the cost per kilo has gone from it went from forty dollars a kilo to fifty and we've just got informed it's gone to 80. So double, it's doubled in the past couple of months and my comment to the supplier was simply this. I get it with the cost of shipping. It's coming out of the Philippines so I'm I'm suggesting there hasn't been a big wage increase for the workers processing it. I don't suggest the sea is charging any more for taking its materials. Please justify to me doubling the cost. I I understood 50 on the cost of shipping. I I, tr- I I struggle to understand AT. And the response that for us as a manufacturer is you have to then, you know, employ your technical and creative skills and you reformulate products to remove that material because ultimately there's a cost increase, but you can't have a cost increase that is just blue sky. There has to be at one point in time, a, a realization that our customers, the brands and the consumers could only afford a certain amount. And this is where we've had to pivot on a very regular basis to look at reformulating, whilst retaining the quality of the product. So knowing that this situation will go on for the next, I would suggest two to three years before any normalisation happens. It, it's going to be a very rocky road, and you know it's no different. You heard about why, why does it take to get a motor a year to get a motor car? <laughs> the same thing, realignment of supply chain.
2: Now, Rowan, uh, you would say at uh, New Laboratories, the, the issue will be. Well, all the producers, all the suppliers, will have to be stuck becoming more transparent, and I would imagine you'd have to actually start committing to long lead productions. Would that be right? Hundred
4: oh, percent. So on long lead productions, that that that's that's a common That's well, it's a common, almost daily discussion we have with our clients. You know, don't think about having your products made within 60 days. Think about having them made within four to six months down the track. Subject to availability of, of raw materials, we started. I'm going to say we started with some of our larger clients last year by suggesting they lock in longer, larger purchase orders with longer lead times to secure raw materials at a lower price at that point. And the smart clients of ours who took up that opportunity saved literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in costs. But the other side to that, on the transparency, is that's you know on our side we t- we are. We are literally an open book with our clients. We tell them quite openly, if this this product's going up, here are the reasons why. It's this emulsifier, this oil, these are the cost increases. It's something that I believe as a manufacturer have to provide that. People talk about transparency, but I call it just basically simple business ethics and honesty, that we're we're in this together. We, We can't sit here and just pass every ridiculous price increase onto our clients. We have to show them how we can pivot, as like I was saying earlier, pivot in terms of our formulation process, how to look at things you know, on a 360 basis. But it's also the informing like the clients who are with us on a, monthly basis, they've been hearing this story you know, for over six to 12 months. So I think it's an important thing that it starts at the manufacturing level, but I think that transparency has to roll right up through to the retail level that consumers are understanding that it's not just price increases for the sake of it, it's price increases because of the reality of the, the global supply chains.
2: Which uh, would suggest, too, that inflation will be here for quite some time.
4: I mean, that's a very sad fact. And you do hear, you know, obviously the, the, the new government is talking about wage increases for the, for the lowest paid workers to address this issue. And I totally get it. And, I to- and in many respects, I agree. And then you have the other side to it that becomes another added cost, another layer in the cost of manufacturing that pushes prices up again. So it can be a bit of a vicious circle. And when you look at things like this, I don't believe when you have a 5%, say, wage increase coming up or potentially coming up, it's not going to stay at one level of society. It'll filter right through. At a certain point in time, it has to top out. But as to when that is, that's a, that's a crystal ball situation.
2: Well, Rowan, this is all very sobering thoughts. and uh... Not happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but you've really shed a lot of light, valuable light on this And thank you very much for your time.
4: My pleasure. And thank you for the
1: opportunity to talk about this topic. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist, Shane Oliver.
2: Well, Shane, tell us what your view about interest rates is. They seem to be going down. Oh, look, (laughs) we think we're probably
1: at the top
3: or if not very close to it. But the risk of further rate hikes in Australia still remains high. I mean, it seems to me there's a lot of evidence that inflation is on the way down. Uh, we're seeing that globally, particularly in the US. Uh, Australia is about six months behind where the US is on the inflation cycle. And we have start, we peaked in uh, December last year uh, when the US peaked in June last year. So I think what's happening in the US is a sign of lower inflation in Australia. And we have also seen our inflation numbers come down. Uh, we've also seen increasing evidence that the Australian consumer is cutting back uh, on, on spending, particularly discretionary spending which uh, points to lower economic growth ahead possibly with the risk of recession so all of those things suggest that the reserve bank should sit tight here exercise patience and wait for the the slowdown to to put further downwards pressure on inflation but by the same token they are still concerned about uh, wages growth being too strong productivity growth is weak which means that the economy. Is more vulnerable to higher inf- to higher wages growth, and the labour market is still tight. So that's why you, you still can't rule out rate hikes, but that we think we are either out or close to the top. So are we expecting more
2: rate hikes this year?
3: Well, we we are not. We we think we've seen the top, but <laughs> you'd have to say the risk the risk is still there. The risk of more rate hikes is still there.
2: So Reserve we'll Bank talk has talked about inflation coming down by 2025. What's your view about that?
3: We, we think, well, well they're talking about a fall in inflation um, over the next couple of years and then getting back to the midpoint of the 2 to 3% inflation target range by the end of 2025. We think it could probably happen a little bit faster than that. And so if we remain on track for the Reserve Bank's forecasts, then interest rates will remain on hold, eventually starting to come down probably through next year. Um, they don't have to keep raising rates just because we're above the target because inflation lags, movements and in interest rates. it takes a while for the, the the rise in rates to impact inflation. So just because we're above target doesn't mean they keep rising rates. but if we're heading towards target then they'll be happy with that. We think that we can get back to the target a little bit faster, which means that they should be able to start cutting interest rates through next year.
2: Governor Lowe gave his testimony to the House of Reps last week and he talked about productivity being an issue and he talked about how, population growth, the government's population growth targets were exceeding 2.5%, but housing was only at 1.5%, which was leading to housing inflation. What's your view about that?
3: Well, that's right. This has been an issue for a long time now in Australia that population growth has been faster than the the supply of new homes. So (laughs) we've got this chronic shortfall of houses. We've got a little bit of homes generally. We got a bit of relief through the pandemic uh, years initially because... We didn't have any immigrants coming to Australia, but that was partly offset because uh, people were less inclined to uh, share in their accommodation. You know, younger people wanted to be on their own rather than if they're going to be locked down rather than being in share accommodation with other people. So consequently, households, number of households rose, uh, even though we didn't have population growth uh, through the pandemic. But now we've gone back to the pandemic period where we've got strong population growth, but we're not building enough homes. And that's leading to an ongoing shortfall. So this has been an issue for a long time, but it's particularly acute at present because we've got vacancy rates, rental vacancy rates around 1%. We need to either cut back on population growth, in other words, slow down the flow of immigrants, or alternatively, boost the supply of homes coming into the market, which means a whole bunch of things. But Uh, he refers there to looking at zoning laws, uh, speeding up um, approval processes and so on. There's also longer term issues that need to be looked at, for example, perhaps decentralising away from our major cities. Uh, But there are a bunch of things that have to be done there and we don't seem to ever see concrete action on them. There's a lot of talk about it, lots of meetings over the last decade or so, but the progress on it has been very, very slow.
2: The
1: other issue is there's a a labour shortage too. There's a a little skill shortage. You you know, we need more builders and bricklayers, et cetera.
3: That's right. We haven't had enough uh, training of apprentices. Occasionally there's talk about that in budgets, but that doesn't sort of made much difference. Obviously the return of immigrants uh, may help fill some of the gap there, but that's an ongoing issue. Uh, and also building material costs have been high. So even though there was a surge in approvals, to build new homes through the pandemic you know, with you know, various incentives put in place, there's a big backlog of houses and and units which are yet to be built yet, be, uh, properties that have been approved but haven't been uh, completed. So that pipeline is there, but it's taking a while to work through it because of the uh, the labour costs, you know, the shortage of labour and the rise in building material costs. And then that, of, that of course, has also seen the situation where many builders have gone bust um, because they've signed up with their customers for fixed, fixed contracts, fixed price contracts, and then found that the cost is well exceeded what they were contracted to deliver for, and then cost blowouts, and, and it sent some of them bust. So that's an, another problem. So there's, there are some chronic problems there in the in the housing market, which, which are related to, but somewhat separate to the productivity issue. The productivity problem is that uh, we used to have productivity growth around 1.5% on average, in other words, output per worker would rise by 1.5% per annum. In that environment, you could have 4% wages growth. Because each worker was producing 1.5% more, um, your actual increase in labour cost is about 2.5%, which is, believe it or not, in line with the inflation target. So. Now we've got uh, productivity, which is a lot weaker than that, which uh, means that it's it's harder to sustain strong wages growth. So we need to find ways to get productivity growth up as well. And there's a whole bunch of issues around that, which Governor Loha has pointed out too. Our tax system is not fit for purpose. Industrial relations system is too highly regulated and not flexible enough. There's all sorts of issues in the in the uh, the services sector, which hamper productivity and all those things need to be looked at, but we don't seem to, <laughs> to have the political will to do that.
2: So, yes, and, and uh, Governor Lowe was kind of alluding to that about political will. He's been alluding to that for quite some time, hasn't
3: he? Oh, he has been. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not a new issue. It's been around for a long time. You could argue the last big productivity reform in Australia was the GST. I know the Liberal National Party under John Howard had worked Places or there was there was a labour market reform in the 90s, but that they arguably went, or sorry, the 2000s, but they arguably went too far on that, and there was a backlash. The last big reform that stuck was the GST back in uh, 2000, and since then we haven't really had action, significant action in terms of boosting productivity. And likewise, we've done dodgy things. You know, we 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 could be using market forces to direct the shift to a uh, zero carbon economy, but we're not. We're using government uh, direct.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh.
3: Right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
3: To do it largely, and that's uh, known to be inefficient. You know, government's got to pick. What sectors of the economy will do well, and and what, yeah, you know, what are the best ways to get to it, rather than let the market work it out. So, you know, by rejecting a price on carbon, that's also contrary to, you know, best practice in terms of improving productivity. So <laughs> there's a whole bunch of issues here, but the basic problem is that the politics has swung against uh, measures which will enhance productivity in a sustained basis. There's some things there. I mean, they still do bits and pieces about. Better training the workforce, uh, you know, encouraging take up of new technology, and so on. But it, it these days we seem very dependent on government directive as opposed to you know, market forces getting us there. So, so that the, the political political pendulum, which sort of swung towards free markets and deregulation and economic rationalist policies in the 80s, is now well and truly really swung back the other way towards more government intervention and less efficient policies uh today so that's the basic problem here and therefore there's no political will on either side of politics to get productivity up again
2: because basically the the problem with productivity is you need government boldness
3: you do need government boldness you need government that uh, and political leaders who can explain to australians what the issue is why we need to do something about it and then actually do something about it But in an environment where government is driven by um, focus groups and what might be popular and what's not you Now it's hard to get that done and you could look to the U.S. and say it's exactly the same over there the two sides of politics in the U.S. putting aside the issues of culture and wokeness um, the two sides of politics are the same both of them what you use government direction to uh, you know to to determine which way to go in terms of addressing climate change and a more bigger role for government in the economy and that's not what you really want here. It's sort of like back to the 1950s or something with more protectionist policies, particularly using government subsidies to to develop manufacturing, but history tells us that that's not exactly reliable.
2: Indeed. Well, Shane, look, thank you very much for your time. Okay, my pleasure, Leon.
1: So what's happening in the news?
2: Well, the Russian ruble has
1: fallen to its lowest value in 16 months falling past 100 per US dollar. The decline comes as pressure grows on the Russian economy with imports rising faster than exports and military spending growing for the Ukraine war. Russia has been targeted with sanctions by Western countries following its invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. The ruble plummeted after war first broke out, but was bolstered by capital controls and oil and gas exports. It has fluctuated in value since the war, but has lost about a quarter of its value overall against the dollar since Ukraine was invaded. Earlier on Monday, the ruble was 101.04 per US dollar. The more rubles per dollar means the currency is weakening, as it will take more of it to buy one US dollar, which is typically seen as the most powerful currency in the world. Some of the world's biggest companies are turning to artificial intelligence to navigate increasingly complex supply chains, as they face the impact of geopolitical tensions and pressure to eliminate links to environmental and human rights abuses. Unilever, Siemens, and Mask are among those using AI to negotiate contracts, find new suppliers, or help identify those connected to issues, including the alleged repression of Uyghur Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. Although AI support in supply chain management has been used for years, the development of so-called generative AI technology has been offering more opportunities to further automate the process more multinationals have faced a need to keep abreast of their suppliers and customers amid disruptions during the covid-19 pandemic as well as rising geopolitical tensions and workers wage growth accelerated at a slightly weaker than expected pace in the june quarter even as employers scrambled to hire staff in a tight labour market The wage price index for the June quarter rose 0.8% for the three months and 3.6% from a year earlier. Economists had forecast wages would increase 0.9% for the quarter and at an annual clip of 3.7%. Australians continue to rank poorly in financial literacy, with a new study showing just over a quarter of people struggled to answer a set of fairly simple questions on the basics, such as interest rates, inflation and investment risks and returns. The study by Allianz, a global insurance and asset manager, asked more than 1,000 people in Australia and six other developed countries a total of nine questions to test their understanding of basic financial information. While just over a quarter in the Australian survey had poor financial literacy, almost 60% had average literacy. Less than 20% had high literacy. Consistent with other studies, women were found to have lower financial literacy at 34% compared to 16% of men scoring poorly. Millennials and Gen Z lag behind baby boomers in financial literacy. And Australia's richest person, Gina Reinhardt, engaged in a calculated and deliberate fraud of her own children by transferring away from them the right to valuable mining tenements in the 1990s, their lawyers claim. The mining magnate breached fiduciary duty by transferring the ownership of Pilbara tenements from a company that her children would one day control and benefit from into the control of Hancock prospecting. Christopher Withers SC alleged, we don't use the word fraud lightly, Mr Withers said, as he outlined John Hancock and Bianca Reinhardt's case on Monday at the WA Supreme Court. He alleged Mrs Reinhardt had removed mining tenements out of a company constructed for the benefit of her children by a Lang Hancock into hack prospecting, which he ultimately controlled. When John Hancock sought to question his mother over her dealings, he was met with a barrage of lies, threats and intimidation. Mr Withers said, Bianca Reinhardt made an unexpected appearance in court on Monday with her husband, Sasha Serebriakov, The court also heard extraordinary details of Mrs Reinhardt's relationship breakdown with her father through the 1980s after a marriage to Frank Reinhardt, who Lang Hancock did not approve of because he denigrated his mining ventures. That rift was further inflamed with Lang Hancock's marriage to his former house cleaner, Rose Porteous, who the court heard Mrs Reinhardt attempted to get deported, Mr Withers said. Mrs Reinhardt called Mrs Porteous an oriental concubine and repeatedly referred to her as a prostitute Mr Woodhouse said. He claimed Mrs Reinhardt also flew to the US with a mother's will in an attempt to prevent Lang Hancock from obtaining probate. Do you want to give you one-third to a Filipino prostitute, Mrs Reinhardt said in a letter to her father in the mid-1980s, referencing what he should do with his stake in Hancock prospecting. Lang Hancock threatened his daughter with defamation proceedings if she were to continue to denigrate his wife, the court heard. Among assets that were allegedly moved by Mrs. Reinhardt from the family company into the control of Hancock Prospecting were mining tenements for land now covered by Hope Downs. The Hope Downs land now lies at the centre of a multi-billion dollar legal dispute between the family of Lang Hancock's business partner Peter Wright and Mrs. Reinhardt's rank Hancock Prospecting. The descendants of Mr. Wright claim they are entitled to an equal share of royalties that have been produced at Hope Downs, a mine that is owned by Hancock Prospecting and Rio Tinto. And Qantas formally declared its support for an Indigenous voice to Parliament as as outgoing airline boss Alan Joyce committed to flying the Uluru dialogue team around the country to help spread the message to remote areas. Mr Joyce said on Monday that Qantas had a long history of supporting reconciliation and the airline would not exist without the guidance of First Nations people. As well as providing free flights to the S campaign, through the company's aircraft, a Qantas Boeing 3737, a Qantas Link Dash 8 turboprop, and a Jetstar Airbus A320 now feature livery with the official Yes-23 logo. Qantas insiders said the airline was always braced for a barrage of criticism whenever it made a political statement, but they did not expect any backlash to its stance on the voice referendum to have a material effect on its revenue. And Australian home insurance premiums jumped the most in two decades in the past year, driven by weather catastrophes and higher building costs, new research showed. Medium home insurance premiums surged 28% to $1,894 in the year to March 31, according to a report released on Monday by the Actuaries Institute. Premiums in the highest risk properties, such as those in flood or bushfire prone areas, shot up 50%, it said. The number of affordability stressed households, those spending more than one month's worth of their gross annual income on home insurance, climbed to 101.24 million from 1 million households a year ago, with the overall proportion rising to 12% from 10%. On average, those households spend 8.8 weeks of their income on home insurance. The new data comes as many Australian households are already struggling with elevated inflation, rising borrowing costs or soaring rents. Half the increase in home insurance premiums relates to building cost inflation, which has spiked during the past two years due to supply chain shortages said Saranjit Pada, one of the report's authors. There's also been an increase in natural disasters and higher reinsurance costs driven by the climate change impacts we are already seeing. The hardest-hit households are in the flood-prone northern rivers region of New South Wales, as well as north Queensland and Western Australia, where cyclone risk is high, the research showed. Extreme weather catastrophes are becoming more common around the globe, with climate scientists warning that one in a hundred year disasters will occur more frequently unless carbon emissions are reduced dramatically. At Sydney's affluent northern beaches, Leafy Inner West and 2nd CBD Parramatta have the highest uptake of electric vehicles in New South Wales, while in Victoria, the Turek tractors of the moneyed Inner Rees are on the out. Residents of Greater Brisbane, the Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast and Moreton Bay are also going electric faster than the rest of the country, although outside the metropolitan regions, Queenslanders are lagging. The number of electric cars on the nation's road doubled last year and tripled in some suburbs as buyers made the carbon-conscious switch and the trend continued this year as global supply chain pressures eased. One in five light vehicles sold in the ACT in the three months to June 30 was electric, while the rates were 8.7% and 9.7% in New South Wales and Victoria respectively, according to the Australian Automobile Association. Slightly more than 8% of new cars sold, or about 46,000 in the first half of 2023, were EVs, a 120% increase on the whole of last year. Illustrating the soaring demand quarter-on-quarter growth was 21% in New South Wales, that's 7,745 EVs sold over three months, a huge 117% in Victoria, 7,875 EVs, and 23% in Queensland, 895 EVs. But although demand is heading in the right direction, the overall number of EVs registered remains a minuscule fraction over what will be needed for Australia to hit key emissions reduction targets in the years ahead. The highest penetration is in Canberra, where about 1% of registered light vehicles are battery EVs, and a further 3% are either hybrid or plug-in hybrid, compared to about 96% powered by petrol or diesel. And a Treasury review into secrecy laws that bind the tax office will consider the fallout from a $1.6 billion tax fraud scheme executed via TikTok, as Federal Labor promises enhanced rules to protect taxpayers. Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones said the government was deeply concerned at the revelations. The fake GST claim scheme went viral on the social media platform, reaching a monetary total that is twice previous reports and represents the biggest tax fraud in Australian history. The fraud was uncovered by the banks, which froze accounts and alerted the tax office. The ATO said strict taxpayer secrecy laws limited what it could share about its investigation into the fraud, which was ongoing from 2020. TikTok said it permanently banned more than 60 accounts and removed hundreds of videos, which triggered the fraud and the illegitimate payouts. One TikTok video last year by social influencers who promoted the scam, viewers were told, everyone else got refund, it's okay, it's just a temporary loan from the government. At least 56,000 people participated in the scam, which involves individuals obtaining an Australian business number then using their mygov account to file fraudulent business activity statements to claim gst refunds which in some cases exceeded one hundred thousand dollars mr jones praised officials involved in operation protago launched to pursue the fraud on april the eleventh last year The Australian Federal Police have since conducted a series of raids that have led to more than 100 arrests, including three senior members of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang. There's also been compliance action against 56,000 people, mostly operating under the radar. And the profit reporting season continues. National Australia Bank raked in $1.9 billion in cash earnings over the June quarter, while reporting a modest deterioration in the quality of loans and lower margins from home loan competition. Contact Energy's profit was down... 55 New Zealand million dollars. Sky City confirmed that its FY23 normalised earnings remain in line with the guidance provided on May 24 of 300 to 310 million New Zealand dollars normalised EBITDA. Bendigo and Adelaide lift cash profits 15.3% to a record 576.9 million. Online vehicle classified advertising group car sales after tax profit jumped 301% to 646 million for the full year ended June 30. Revenue for JB Hi-Fi, Australia's largest home entertainment retailer, gained 4.3% to $9.63 billion in fiscal 2023. Ansel total sales had slipped by 15% in the 12 months ending June 30 to US $1.66 billion, that's $2.56 billion Aussie, while net profit after tax slipped by 6.6% to US $148.3 million. Horizon's annual net profit fell 46% to $276 million. GWA Group reported a statutory net profit of $43.2 million for the year ended June 30, up 22.7% on the prior year. Argo Investments reported a 13.2% decline in full-year profit to $271.7 million. Lendless reported a statutory loss after tax of $232 million for the year ended June 30. GPT Group reported a net loss after tax of $1.1 million for the six months to June 30, with investment property valuation declines of $341.3 million. Gas producer Beach Energy reported a 24% drop in full-year profit. Centuria Industrial REIT CIP swung to a statutory loss of about 77 million dollars over the 12 months to June 30. Charter Hall posted a statutory profit of 37.8 million dollars. Home furnishing e-commerce company Temple and Webster Group has posted a 7.2 percent decline in full-year sales to US 395.5 million. That's Aussie 609.5 million dollars. With its bottom line sinking more than 30% to US $8.3 million, but the group met its profit margin guidance. Automotive parts group GUD Holdings lifted statutory net profit by 252% to $98.6 million in 2022 23, helped along by a large acquisition. Family tracking app. Life three hundred sixty reported net loss of U.S. four point four million dollars, that six point eight million dollars Aussie, for the three months ended June thirty, while revenue increased forty five percent year on year to U.S. seventy point eight million dollars. Blood products giant CSL has lifted full year underlying profit ten percent to U.S. two point six one billion dollars, that's four billion dollars Aussie. Treasury wine estates reported 3.3% decline in net profit to $254.5 million for the year ended June 30, compared with $263.2 million a year earlier. Annuities and funds management business Challenger has posted a statutory net profit up 13% to $288 million. Hearing device maker Cochlear tipped its underlying profit figure to rise between $355 million and $375 million. HealthCo Healthcare and Wellness REIT delivered operating earnings of funds from operations, FFO, of 6.9 cents per unit, that's $25.5 million. Biotech stock ProMedicus says the company increased its net profit by 36.5% to $60.6 million in financial year 2023. SEEK reported a 1% drop in adjusted net profit after tax to $255 million for the 2023 financial year, and earnings before interest taxes depreciation and amortisation, or EBITDA, rose 7% to $546.1 million, less than what it guided. Metals, recycle and electronics recovery giant SIMS has reported a 70% dive in profit to $181.1 million. Small mall landlords, Region Group reported a statutory net loss after tax of $123.6 million, down 125.4% compared with fiscal 2022. Fletcher Building net profit after tax fell to $235 million, compared to $432 million in the previous year. Transurban's annual net profit has risen fivefold to $92 million after income from toll fares jumped 26% to more than $3 billion, BAPCOR's full-year net profit after tax came in $106.4 million, down from $125.8 million in 2022. Seven West Media's net profit was $146.3 million, down from $200.8 million last year, while net debt was $249 million, down from $256 million. Endeavour Group post bottom-line net profit of $529 million, up 6.9%, from a year ago's $495 million. ASX-listed landlord and fund manager, Dexis has swung to a full-year statutory net loss after tax of $752.7 million after recording hefty write-downs on its portfolio. The Synergy Centres Group has booked a net profit of $271.5 million for its 2023 financial year, propped up by its portfolio retail sales growing by 8%. ASX listed Mervac forecast operating earnings per security to fall to between $0.14 to $0.14.3 this financial year after reporting a 3% decline for the year to June of $0.14.7 per security. PAC Group tumbled to a $6.6 million loss for 2022-23 after $53 million of write-downs. Computer share full-year revenue jumped 27% to $3.3 billion. Earnings also rose up 72% to... 1.23 billion dollars. Net wealth reported FY23 impact of 67 million dollars, up 20% year on year. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Mohan Jessederson, the CEO of X2M Connect, about smart community grids. And I'll be talking to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs and wages figures. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bring you Talking Business next week.
0: Hold up. What was that?